Historic day two in the U.S. Supreme Court on health care, oral arguments. We'll have all of the arguments and the political implications of them all uh, throughout the show this morning. But what about that day one? We think the closest analog is the very next provision in the United States Code, 7422A, which this Court has held as jurisdictional and is phrased in exactly the same way as 7421A. In fact, as I said— Wait, wait a minute. 7422 is the same as 7421? you got to be kidding. That's Solicitor General Donald Verrilli with an argument that is probably not a candidate to be engraved on some marble tablet somewhere. So, Monica Heyman, are you sure you want to go into these hearings Uh, today? You've been camped out for, what, five days there in D.C.? I bet it's still on, too. After five days, you have to. That sounded a little dense yesterday. Did you hear any of it? Um, I wasn't able to hear any of the oral arguments from yesterday. All right. Well, they say, actually, and uh, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, who's our guide on all of this, says that the the big arguments are going to be in uh, today's uh, oral arguments before the Supreme Court. If you had a question you were going to ask the justices or an argument you would make, what would it be, Monica? let them know that this law is absolutely constitutional. There is a long line of precedence that shows that the Supreme Court has been referring to Congress in uh, regulating interstate markets, and the health care is absolutely something that Congress should be involved in. There's no other way. All right. That's Monica Hammond. You are a legal assistant in there in Washington, D.C.? Yes. All right. Jeffrey Rosen, a professor of law at George Washington University. What do you make of uh, uh, Monica's question there? Uh, I think that's one of the central issues in the case and persuading the court that uh, the failure to purchase health insurance really does have a huge effect on the economy is exactly what General Varelli, who's the Solicitor General, is going to be trying to do today. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, the precedents that actually Monica raised in her uh, very intelligent question. Uh, As as we spoke about yesterday, it's all it all comes down to the Commerce Clause. The uh, the uh, Constitution seemed to exclude the federal government from anything that wasn't interstate commerce. How is the argument going to be made that health care, that me having to buy health care in my own neighborhood, in my own state, is something that the federal government actually has an interest in? The argument's going to be that people who choose not to buy health care now will end up uh, either buying it later or throwing themselves on emergency room care. And this decision to delay the purchase of health care has billions of dollars effects on the economy. Essentially, people who are uh, covered and healthy people have to subsidize the, the, those who choose not to buy it at the cost of billions of dollars. And this raises the premium for individual families uh, at least $1,000 a year. So that's why Monica is absolutely right that there are huge practical effects of the decision not to buy health insurance. And that's what the Solicitor General is going to be arguing. Now, Jeffrey Rosen, is one of the justices likely to ask a terrifying question like this? Well, why then do you pay for people in emergency rooms? Why don't you just let them die? Why do we need to pass that cost on to Americans? It has nothing to do with the Constitution. (laughs) You know, Justice Scalia often has a sort of mordant wit, but I think that even he might balk at uh, putting things quite that... uh that directly. No, I think uh, they're, they're all uh, practical enough to recognize that uh, everyone at some point is going to become uh, sick and need health insurance. The, the more skeptical justices are, are likely to put it in more abstract terms, saying, 
well, it may be uh, too bad, but the decision not to buy health insurance is a form of economic inactivity, not a form of economic activity. When in this court have we ever held that economic inactivity is regulated by the Constitution? It's likely to be something along those lines. Oh, that's interesting. That's actually quite interesting. So who are the arguers on the side of uh, the challenges to the the Patient Protection and Affordable Health Care Act, or Obamacare, as it's called? Who, who are the arguments for or who are the arguers for the states that uh, stand out in your mind? Uh, the, the the lawyer is uh, Paul Clement. He is a former U.S. Solicitor General, uh, razor sharp respected by the justices, really enjoys the give and take. So he's going to be the main, the, the, the main show today. And uh, how is the argument actually framed? I mean, if there are so many precedents, as Monica Heyman says, and as you say, that the, the economy is something that the federal government has had an interest in for a long, long time, how are they framing this argument that's going to be credible to the justices? You know, in some ways, the, the, the briefs kind of play Hamlet without the prince because the, the, the challengers actually want to overturn the precedents that Monica talked about. In particular, this, this case from 1942, Wickard and Filburn, which allowed the federal government to regulate a farmer who was growing wheat in his backyard for his own personal consumption, and the court upheld that on the ground that if he ate his own wheat, he wouldn't buy interstate wheat, and that would have an indirect impact on the economy. The, the, the challengers don't like that case, but they don't want to say so explicitly because that would require uh, too much disruption. So they're trying, I, I, implausibly, in, in, in the view of many people, to claim that actually the decision not to buy health insurance has less of an impact on the economy than the decision to eat your own backyard wheat. Uh, there, and what's, another, that, what's that precedent again, Jeffrey? Filbert uh, versus what? Sorry, it's called Wickard and Filburn. First-year law students learn it, and now everyone should run to the computers and, and read it because it's really kind of the, 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 the centerpiece of the case. Monica, do you know about that case? I do. Really? Um, and I think and- that... <laughs> Um, I think that it's very clear that this is going to fall into a very similar category. Uh, healthcare is unique in the sense that everyone is involved, and it's a little different than just not buying wheat or not making it yourself at your home. But I think that the court right. is going to find that it's similar enough to uphold it. But we're going to stay with the Jeffrey Rosen after a break here. But we're going to say goodbye to Monica Heyman. Is there anyone in the courtroom, either uh, in, in, in one of the justices or the Solicitor General or the former Solicitor General who's arguing uh, against the uh, Health Care Act that you imagine yourself uh, becoming one day, Monica? <laughs> um, we can all hope. Well, I mean, in, in um, the legal I... world, there are there are legal eagles. Are there any up there that you're looking at particularly? Uh, Paul Clement is an amazing advocate before the court, and I think that if I was ever able to get close to that one day, I'd be very lucky. And how are you going to take what you learn uh, when you get into the court today back to your job as a legal assistant? Well, I think that everyone should be looking at the facts um, and at the cases in front of them. Um, As a legal assistant, I take a look at a lot of different cases and I think that as long as you're looking at the totality of the circumstances, that you're going to come to the right decision. All right. Monica Heyman, who's been camped out, who's going to be in the day two oral arguments against the uh, before and against the uh, Health Care Reform Act. Monica, thanks so much. Jeffrey Rosen stays with us. She's, he's a professor of law at George Washington University.
You're listening to The Takeaway from WNYC and PRI Public Radio International in collaboration with the BBC World Service, The New York Times, and WGBH Boston Public Radio. We'll continue with our discussion about the Supreme Court and the arguments in their second day now over the health care law. We asked you, what do you still not understand about the, how these decisions might affect you? And a listener in Boston answered, everything. So we've still got our legal scholar Jeffrey Rosen with us, right, Jeffrey? Uh, yep, still here. Professor of law at George Washington University. So we have a bunch of questions. We got a huge number of questions from our listeners, and hopefully, hopefully you can answer some of them. Uh, a listener in Florida texted this question. What happens if I don't get a policy? Will I be fined? Will I not get emergency medical attention? How will it be policed? And this is something, Jeffrey, that actually the Supreme Court justices asked about. What happens as punishment if you don't get health care? That's right. That was the central question in yesterday's uh, arguments. And everyone agrees that if you don't get health care, then you pay a fine, a $695 annual fine, and in terms of how will it be pleased, it's considered a tax penalty, and basically the IRA collects it from your returns as if it were a tax. Now, the, there are lots of exceptions for low-income people. It can't be more than 1% or so of your annual income. And uh, basically, the justices agreed yesterday that if you don't pay it, you're not going to be treated as a criminal. That definitely emerged from the arguments yesterday. But essentially, it's a $695 fine, and it's taken out of your tax returns. Yeah, and, if you, and they, even if you don't pay that $695 fine, that's one of the things that justices pointed out. Nothing happens to you. Exactly right. All right. So we actually... One of the questions that many people asked was about those provisions for economic hardship that are in the law. But that's part of policy, right? That's not necessarily part of the legal argument. The cost is not part of constitutionality, right? The cost is only part of constitutionality to the degree that the decision not to buy health insurance affects interstate commerce. But you're, you're absolutely right that the uh, subsidies and exactly who pays uh, generally are not central to the legal arguments. All right, so here's another question that we got from a lot of listeners, and it's actually one of the arguments uh, from the states. Many of the people arguing on behalf of the states that the individual mandate is the wrong way to go about this say it should be something like the Cash for Clunkers program, right, in which they offer you an incentive to purchase something as opposed to requiring you uh, to purchase it. Uh, The government argues that there's no comparison between health insurance and the purchasing of a car. What do you think about that? Uh, It's true that in the arguments yesterday before the Supreme Court, everyone agreed that had the thing just been presented as an incentive rather than a uh, mandatory penalty, then there wouldn't have been a constitutional question. And uh, but the issue of whether it's like cash for clunkers or not, I think is not a central constitutional issue, because once again, if it does affect interstate commerce, then it doesn't have to be treated like a tax. But this is all this is all legalese. I think I think the the question the questioner's basic uh, instinct is right. But that's that's just a policy question. The, the, the reform could have been designed in a, in a different way. But this was the, what, what got through Congress. And, and now it's before the court. And we are answering your questions with Jeffrey Rosen, who's professor of law at George Washington University. If you have a question about the uh, the oral arguments before the Supreme Court or the health care law and how it might affect you, call us at 877-8-MY-TAKE. Here's another question for you, Jeffrey. Uh, a listener says, I still don't understand the role insurance carriers have. Do they become government agencies or highly regulated businesses? The answer? Good question, and the answer is highly regulated businesses. The whole point of this reform is that a single government payer was not uh, created. Instead, they're private 
exchanges set up, and people can choose the one that they think offers them the best rates. They are high reg- highly regulated in the sense that they're required to provide coverage. They can't deny coverage based on pre-existing conditions, and there are all sorts of other requirements, but they're definitely private companies and not government exchanges. Okay, so the, here's a follow-up to that. Scott in Miami, Florida posted this at our website, thetakeaway.org. Everyone's talking about mandating Americans to buy health insurance, Scott says. No one's talking about whether or not insurance companies will be required to pay when one gets sick or injured. Now, if one gets injured, the insurance companies try to disqualify that person from receiving benefits or say that's not covered. Who keeps the insurance companies accountable? Uh, That's another really good question. Broadly, it's a reform that involves uh, who is covered and not what's covered. But there are certain uh, benefits for, for, for Scott and the rest of us. There are bans on lifetime limits on coverage in the law. In other words, health, cans, health plans can't uh, uh, deny coverage after a certain amount, and also bans on very tight annual limits on uh, coverage, uh, which are going to take place in 200, uh, 2014. And, I, and those are enforced, I guess, by the federal government. If, if, a, if a company starts imposing these lifetime limits, then the, they, they could be challenged in court. But broadly, the frustration we all have when a particular claim isn't uh, covered uh, is not going to be regulated by this law. All right, and here's one from a doctor from Fort Lauderdale. He texted this, I support the support of the law. However, I must confess to being lost in terms of understanding the rollout of the law and how it's helped or could be helping my patients and myself now in the future. Therefore, I'm sure there's much I don't know in terms of how the court ruling will imp- impact any of us. He seems to be confused over the what has gone into effect, what has not gone into effect, and what happens if the Supreme Court rolls against this. Does everything just go away? Uh, interesting uh, and important question. The law has not yet gone into effect. Its provisions don't kick in until 2014, and the penalty doesn't kick in until 2015. So whatever benefits or costs are going to happen, we're not seeing yet. In terms of what will happen after the Supreme Court rules, it, it all depends on what the court uh, does. If the court strikes down the individual mandate, there are going to be hard questions about whether it's even possible to implement the rest of the law. Uh, would the provisions requiring the coverage of pre-existing conditions have to be repealed or not? Some of that would be a legal question. Would the court strike those provisions down? Some would be a political question. But in terms of how we're all going to feel the effects in practical terms, it's really impossible to say until we get a ruling from the Supreme Court. And that's why the Obama administration is so eager to get a definitive answer so they can know when this law is actually uh, going to take effect. Don't we already have a mandate? I mean, if somebody, an insurance per- person goes into the emergency room, gets care that they can't pay for, I'm told that that adds $1,000 on average onto my costs. Doesn't that mean I'm already required by law to pay for uninsured people? Uh, Good, good, good question. In, in practice, you are required to pay, and in practice, your rates go up. But because that uh, penalty is not exacted from your tax return, it's not considered a formal legal obligation in the way that the, the mandate in this new health care bill would be. But in real life, it is, Jeffrey. It sure is. <laughs> no question about it. Jeffrey Rosen is professor of law at George Washington University. If you have questions to try about the health care law, about the Supreme Court oral arguments, or what the decision might do to your life, give us a call at 8778 take or post your comment at thetakeaway.org. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you.